It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And uh, you can join us during the week, by the by, Fox Business Network. Name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m., Fox Business Network. If you can't join us at 4, you can uh, text your favorite 9-year-old and she'll... She'll show you how to DVR the show. And here, you can catch us um, on the Internet, live streaming, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com, throughout the country and the globe and the solar system and the Milky Way, whatever that is. We're a little bit under the weather today, a little cough and cold maybe. But we will get through it. Lots to do. I want to start with um, this uh Biden scandals, Hunter Laptop Biden scandals. You know, you know, one thing we learned this past week. So an IRS supervisor, I guess a senior guy. He uh, had his lawyer tell his tell various lawmakers that he's got information. He's got information about the Biden administration and the laptop and all the financial dealings and the uh, and the uh, various embezzlements. Anyway, he said that the Bidens are improperly handling the criminal investigation into the president's son, Hunter. All right. I think many of us suspected this, but this guy is a senior IRS guy. And he wants to testify but he was having trouble getting proper uh, immunity, you know, whistleblower protection, whistleblower protection. So now it looks like uh, since this story surfaced, it's, he'll get his protection, probably uh, from the Ways and Means Committee. I mean, he's a tax guy, so maybe Jason Smith's, Jason Smith's the chairman of the new, uh, the new chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. And I uh, did I presume it's a tax matter. I don't. I don't know that, but I presume it's got something to do with taxes because uh, Hunter Biden is facing all kinds of tax evasion charges in uh, Delaware and elsewhere. So we know that we learned that this week. And um, one point that came out of this was the Merrick Garland point. Okay, because this whistleblower is saying that a very senior administration official was handling all this improperly, what he called a senior political appointee, and contradicted sworn testimony, that is the appointee, and preferential treatment, providing preferential treatment for Hunter Biden. So that's what this IRS guy, that's what his lawyer said. Everybody suspects it's Attorney General Merrick Garland. Everybody suspects that. We'll learn more. But one little kernel here is that the U.S. attorney in Delaware, who's been sitting on this case for five years, five years, mind you, is having trouble getting cooperation from other U.S. attorneys around the country. And he needs cooperation because apparently... Hunter Biden's tax cheating covers different states. 
Okay. In this Delaware grand jury, five years, right? I mean, if the guy's name was Trump and you had he's had gun charges, improper registration of guns, tax evasion, God knows what. The guy's name is Trump. Without question, it would be uh, the grand jury would have come out with a conviction in 10 minutes. Or if the guy's name was Smith. But his name's Biden. So it's gone on all these years. You're going to ask yourself, why is that? Well, of course, why is that? We're going to learn why is that. We're going to learn it probably in, in spades pretty soon. But there's another part of this story, okay, that's really sleazy. And that's what I want to focus on today, because it hasn't gotten enough attention. Now, follow me on this, folks. This past week, a former deputy director of the CIA, right, that's a big job. Guy's name is Mike Morell, big Democrat. Now, he testified in front of Jim Jordan's Judiciary Committee. And he testified about this whole laptop fiasco where the Bidens, remember this, during the Biden campaign, they got 51 former high-ranking intelligence officials to sign a letter saying there was no truth to the New York Post story about Hunter Biden's laptop, right? And it was all a Russian disinformation operation. Remember? Now, this former deputy director of the CIA, who quarterbacked this letter, which has been disproved now over and over again, right? We all know there was a Hunter Biden laptop. And we all know there's tons of incriminating evidence in that laptop. We know this now. But, of course, during the campaign in 2020, this deputy CIA director, Mike Morell, who undoubtedly wanted to be the CIA director, he put this letter together with 51 big shot intel people. You know, John Brennan, all these left-wingers from MSNBC, you see it all the time. And they lie through their teeth. They lie through their teeth. Okay? Right now, these intel people are running for the hills. They'll never admit they were lying to elect Biden over Trump, which is pathetic by itself. But, 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 here's where I really want to go here. It turns out, from Morell's testimony, that the person who really quarterbacked this and drove this letter of 51 former intelligence officials was Antony Blinken, who is the current Secretary of State. He was the real quarterback, and Morell testified to this this past week. And a lot of the media attention was on Morell. I want to put it on Blinken because it was Morell who outed Blinken. Blinken was the real driver of this lying letter. And by the way, this letter, you know, it was all put up, remember, so Biden could lie in the second debate against Trump. That's what the letter was for. 
at the Hunter Biden laptop and all the influence peddling and the money payoffs, foreign business people, all this stuff tied into the Biden crime family. The purpose of the letter was to let Biden pull this letter out in the debate, 51 intel officers, blah, 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 and lie during the debate with Trump. Now, Blinken is the Secretary of State. It is the highest-ranking cabinet officer in our government. He was behind this criminal enterprise. Now, I'm calling it a criminal enterprise. I don't know that it'll ever go to court. I don't know that it'll ever become a felony. I'm just saying it's a criminal enterprise because of the low, low politics that Anthony Blinken was practicing in order to get his job as Secretary of State. This was the worst kind of politics. Now, Morell didn't get his job as CIA director. Blinken did. He got his job as Secretary of State. But it was a dirty tricks. Cheap, sleazy, political operation. Dirty tricks. That's all it was. Like some of the dirty tricksters in the Republican campaigns or in the Democratic campaigns. You know, low-level people on the ground pulling off weird stunts. Well, this guy, Blinken, among the high and mighty who got to be Secretary of State, he was the engineer of this operation. And that is pathetic. That is pathetic. We learned this just this past week. We learned this. And that's why I'm talking about it. I talked about this on the TV show last night. Now, there's one other character in this. His name is Jake Sullivan. Mr. Jake Sullivan is presently the national security advisor to Biden. Another big job. Not as big as Secretary of State, but a very big job. Now, I don't know, I have no evidence that Sullivan was involved in this lying letter from the 51 intelligence people that was ordered, mandated by Antony Blinken. I don't know that. I have my suspicions about Sullivan because Sullivan was one of the leading retailers of Secretary Hillary Clinton's phony Russian hoax and steel dossier operation that plagued the Trump campaign and Trump's presidency. Sullivan's fingerprints are all over that which should have been a criminal operation, but never got through court. So I'm just saying, although I have no evidence, I got my eye on Sullivan, because there he is mixed up with the same crowd. Now, my biggest point in this is that political hacks, dirty tricksters, which is all Blinken was, Anthony Blinken, should never be at the senior most level of the U.S. government. 
most important agencies. I mean, think about this. The four most important, powerful agencies, departments in the American government is the State Department, the Defense Department, the Justice Department, and the Treasury Department. Those are the four most important departments. They should be peopled by experts with sterling reputations. Mr. Blinken is neither an export expert nor does he have a sterling reputation because he engaged, Blinken engaged, in the worst kind of lying politics, dirty tricks politics, by forming this letter of 51 intel people who lied about the Hunter Biden laptop and the New York Post story around They lied, and he put it together. And he should never be our senior diplomat. Now, he's been ineffectual anyway. But it's worse because of what he pulled. Campaign dirty tricks. That's all. And this guy's the Secretary of State. No, that is not the high government, high-minded kind of person that I know. I've... I've had two tours. I worked for President Ronald Reagan, and I worked for President Donald Trump. I mean, think about this. Do you think Mike Pompeo would have put together a dirty tricks lying letter? Do you think George Shultz, Reagan's great Secretary of State, would have put together a dirty tricks lying letter? No. No, they would not. By the way... Democrats, Madeleine Albright, Secretary of State under Bill Clinton, would not have put together a dirty tricks lying letter. So it's this is recent. I mean, you can go back, I don't know how many years into the 1950s, Dean Acheson, who was Harry Truman's Secretary of State, Democrats. He wouldn't have done any such thing. He wouldn't have gone near it. He wouldn't have gone near it. George Shultz wouldn't have gone near it. Mike Pompeo wouldn't have gone near it. This is recent. This basically starts with the Obama administration, with Hillary Clinton, and now spills over into the Biden administration. You got a bunch of lying, dirty tricksters running this government, running the senior parts of this government. I mean, look, I mentioned the four top positions, state, treasury, defense, justice. You've got... Blinken, as part of this dirty tricks operation in the State Department, and you've got Merrick Garland as part of this dirty tricks operation. He's running the Justice Department. He's holding back U.S. attorneys so this guy in Delaware, Weiss, can't get on with his business to prosecute Hunter Biden. Two of the four major agencies are being run by dirty tricksters. Ultimately, this crazy Hunter Biden business, well, I think it's going to go right up to the present. But I'm just saying this is not the honorable, high-calling U.S. government that I know and have experienced in my time and my two tours. This is not. This is the worst, sleaziest operation I've ever seen. 
So I'll just conclude. Save America, folks. Drain the swamp. I'll be right back. I'm Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. So I got another little sleazeball item here. It's not quite as elaborate as uh, Anthony Blinken, who shouldn't be anywhere near the top of the State Department. But um, the Biden administration came out with this great new plan regarding mortgages to penalize middle class people. Okay, this is a terrific idea. So get this. If you have a FICO score of 680 or higher, right, you work hard the last, I don't know how many years, get your score up, and if you can put 15 to 20% down on a home, right, which is really a terrific thing to do, the major investment nest egg, you will be penalized. That's right. You will pay a higher mortgage rate, and you will have more fees to pay to get the mortgage. Meanwhile, while those who can't put mortgage money down, who can't put the nest egg down to 20%, who don't have a FICA score, they will get a lower mortgage rate. And they'll get cheaper fees. This, is, this isn't even, by the way, take from the rich and give to the poor. Because it isn't rich people who are paying this. It's middle class people. You know, the ultra-rich, the wealthy people, uh, they don't care about this stuff. It's middle-class people trying to realize the American dream, who work hard, play by the rules, save up their money, build up their credit score, put down 20% like you're supposed to, and the Biden administration is going to penalize you. You will have a higher mortgage rate, and you will have more fees to pay. And that money presumably goes to those folks who can't afford a down payment and don't have a good FICA score. This is being done through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which uh, control about 60 65% of all the home mortgages in this country. The rules come from something called the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which uh, supervises Fannie and Freddie. I mean, how disgusting is this? I mean, this is big government socialism. This is, but this isn't take from the rich and give to the poor. This is take from the middle class and give to the poor. It's the middle class that struggles to get a down payment. It's the middle class that struggles to get their FICA score. Right? And uh, we learned, I thought, 15 years ago in the financial meltdown, if you give people mortgages who, who can't afford it for whatever reason, right, they default on the mortgage, they go bankrupt, their lives are ruined, and the banks, in this case Fannie and Freddie, go bankrupt themselves. Wait a second. Taxpayers bailed out Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac 15 years ago to the tune of nearly $200 billion dollars. And these dumbos in the Biden administration are trying to do it again. It's an incredible story. It's the second sleaze. I'm Kudlow. We're going to have Kaylee McEnany, former Trump press secretary. She's got a new book out, and she's a brilliant woman. We'll talk some politics and her book on the other side of this break. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. 
From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. And it is with great pleasure that I bring in my friend Kaylee McEnany, who is former White House press secretary in the Trump administration, the, presently the co-host of Fox News, Outnumbered, and a New York Times bestselling author, and she's doing it again. Her new book is coming out in May 2nd, and it's titled Serenity in the Storm, Living Through Chaos by Leaning on Christ. And I love that right there. I love it. I'm all for it. I don't have the book yet, but I I love this. I love the notes. And Kaylee, thank you for coming on. And hey. go ahead. Yeah, great to join you, Larry. And I will make sure you get a book. It's a pleasure to join you. Um, as you know, you are a beloved former and current colleague. <laughs> You're the best. I, you know, I just love this. You've, um, I'm just reading through some of the notes. That's why I really want to read this book. But you look at all these problems social problems, uh, diplomatic war problems, Afghanistan, crime problems. You look at it through the lens of faith, and you say, um, the storms we face have prompted many great leaders to rise to the moment and have left a yearning in the human heart for a Savior, Jesus Christ, who is walking alongside us every step of the way. You know, um, Kelly, I've been through my own problems and crises in my life, and uh, I believe uh, in the last 30 years that Jesus Christ has walked alongside me, he's fallen with me, and he's risen with me, or let me just say he's pulled me back up. So I just think right off the top, I, I love what you're saying here. Love this. Exactly. And that is so beautifully said, Larry. You know, at the end of the day, it's, it's so easy to get involved in the horse race of politics. You know, I'm for this Republican candidate or that one or, you know, I you know don't like what the Democrats are doing or, you know, it's so easy to get caught up in that. But when your vision transcends uh, the, the human political process and you realize um, the goodness that comes with faith and love of Jesus Christ and the kindness and compassion that he showed, uh, it can take us to a place if we have a nationwide revival where uh, we love one another and this divisiveness is just gone. Um, and God's at work even now. And and you see that even in the darkness of Afghanistan and the, the horrid takeover of the Taliban. You know, I got to speak with a member of the underground church there. She was beautiful, named Asman. And she said, uh, the underground church is on fire. It may be small, but it's mighty. And the receptiveness to the message of Christ there is, is um, something to be said and a story to be told. Kaylee, this um, sounds to me like an optimistic book. It is. Look, we live in, in dark times. Um, there's no doubt about that. You just turn on the news and you see it. So we've got to be real and candid and realistic about where we are. But at the same time, he's not gone. He's still there. And when we turn to him, amazing things can happen. And, you know, I would argue one such moment was the Dobbs decision where uh, life is now valued. Um, 63 million children have been killed uh, to the scourge of abortion since Roe. And, and he's at work, even at times when it doesn't feel like he's there. Who else? What a, I want to get talk politics with you. I want to talk, you know, low and dirty politics with you, but I want, yes. <laughs> I want to start with the high road on this lovely book. Um, what other examples do you talk about in the book? One of them is religious freedom. You know, when uh, you go back to the, the 60s and the 70s, where we had a Supreme Court that said, you know, no, you can't say God in school. You can't pray in school. Um, that That's not fair. Um, you know, they they essentially took God out of society entirely. And the court, actually, when it took out school prayer, said, you know, yes, there's separation of church and state, 
But that doesn't mean that we create a religion of secularism in this country. And what we've seen for decades is the courts do just that. But um, all of a sudden, Amy Coney Barrett gets to the court and these onerous COVID restrictions are, are wiped away that you know, targeted churches. Uh, Coach Kennedy can now kneel in silent prayer, silent prayer on the 50 yard line after a football game by himself, which is um, inconceivable that uh, there was a point in our country where you couldn't do that. But uh, religious liberty is another example where you're seeing him at work, even when it feels dead. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, look, the way the left is trying to change our culture, cancel culture, there's no God, there's no religion, there's no family, there's no work, right? It's all government. Government is God, government is religion, government is family, government provides the work, government is investment. There's no, you know, in, in my line, in the economy, there's, there's no free enterprise, there's no free markets anymore, it's all government dominated. Like we just had one, Kaylee. We had this um, earlier last week. The EPA comes out with a, a tailpipe, you know, auto regulation that will basically end uh, the internal combustion engine. And our our former colleague Steve Miller is on the show, and he says to me, "Well, we're going to end the internal combustion engine. Did anyone vote on that, <laughs> House or Senate? <laughs> no, they're just going to declare it." Just like they're declaring, you know, you're right about religion in the school. Kelly, when I was a kid, listen to this. When I was a kid, I went to this place called the Dwight Englewood School. We said the Lord's Prayer in homeroom. Now, this is a long time ago. You couldn't get it. They'd probably shoot you for that now. But we actually said the Lord's Prayer in homeroom at the beginning of the day. Go figure. Yeah, it's that's exactly right. And look, you can opt out of that if you so choose. Um, you know, that that is um, one answer to that. But what's interesting to me is so Madeline Murray O'Hare, who's a famous atheist, uh, she was responsible for getting prayer out of schools in large part. Hmm. Um, but what was interesting, her son, Bill Murray, later in life rejected his mother's atheist views. Um, and he had uh, alcohol problems at the time when he was, um, you know, godless, and he changed his life, and you could see the evidence in the way his life changed. Um, and not only that, he pointed out Baltimore schools used to be a place when there was prayer in schools where you didn't need security guards, mm. there was no violence in schools. And he said, you took out prayer from schools, and all of the scourges we see happening in the American education system can be traced back to the moment when we chase God out of the schools. But totally to your point, big government, the EV rules, you know, the big G seems to be government these days and not mm. God. And uh, mm. wow, what are we reaping? No, that's right. You know, um, uh, my dear friend and former employer, but dear, dear friend, Judy, and our friend, uh, the late Bill Buckley, William F. Buckley, wrote at some length in his last years about the downfall of religion. And by the way, free religious speech uh, and what, you know, how it was taken out of the schools, you know, he, taken out. of he, Obviously, Bill, Bill lived in a rarefied world of well-heeled boarding schools, but there's no God in those boarding schools anymore. That's the example I was given in my private school. They've changed all that. I mean, this was a long time ago that I was in prep school. But the point is, Buckley wrote about how you lose religion and you are going to lose the soul of the country. Uh, our friend Bill Bennett, who I don't know if you know Bill, he's a pal of mine from the Reagan years, um, often comes on our show and talks about that. You lose religion, 
Uh, you lose the soul of the country. You lose your culture. You lose your bearings, Kaylee, you know? So I see a book here that talks about a yearning in the human heart for a Savior, Jesus Christ, who was walking alongside us every step of the way. You know, I can almost cry over that, but it's just a wonderful thing to read. Yeah, it's so true. And especially, you know, I get into social media, um, you know, with young girls. It it really troubled me and broke my heart um, when I saw the CDC statistic that one in three girls are contemplating suicide or have thought about it. I mean, that that's amazing. Thirty mm. percent. You walk mm. down the street, you see three girls. One of those girls has thought about suicide. And mm. when we live in a society where your answer is Twitter and Instagram, you know, I grew up, MySpace was created just as I was uh, leaving high school. So I didn't really grow up in this generation um, but it, it's tough. Um, you know, my parents instilled in my heart, you know, that I do have a savior to look to. And when the goings got tough, when I was living in New York City and was so lonely at one point, you know, I had someone to turn to that wasn't social media. And I remember asking God, you know, hey, are you out there? I need to hear from you right now. And I got a call minutes later from the church I was attending saying, we feel like we need to pray for you. You know, we're making a round of calls. How can we pray for you? And from that moment on, you know, I knew he was real in a very personal way. And, and having that outlet to turn to, um, it, it just breaks my heart that not all young women have that at a time when they're turning to social media and the selfie. Um, and it just it, it, it has disastrous. We all need a higher power of some kind. No doubt about it. Right. I mean, we just do. I learned that long time ago myself. I had my problems with alcohol and drugs and you need a higher power. You can't get through life without one. Folks, we are talking to Kelly McEnany, who was a former White House press secretary and uh, presently co-host of Fox News Outnumbered. And she's got a new book out, Serenity in the Storm, Living Through Chaos by Leaning on Christ. Kelly, you got a little more time. I want to take a break and maybe come back and talk some politics with you, if that's okay. Can't wait. Looking forward to it. All right, kiddo. Uh, folks, I'm Cudlow. We're going to take a break, uh, quick break. Be back with Kaylee McEnany. Please stick around. Larry Kudlow. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We are talking with Kaylee McEnany, who was the former White House press secretary during the Trump years, my uh, my colleague, and is presently co-host of Fox News' hit show, Outnumbered, and she's a New York Times best-selling author. The new book is Serenity in the Storm, Living Through Chaos by Leaning on Christ. The release date is May 2nd, so we're coming down to it. It's just a little more than a week. You can. I love to sell books on radio, one click on Amazon or whatever. Uh, Kelly, big story in the Wall Street Journal today. Their polls out, um, which confirms what we've been seeing. The headline is Trump Tops DeSantis in poll of GOP, head to head, DeSantis was up plus 14 in December. And uh, now DeSantis has fallen to minus 13. Uh, our former boss is plus 13, 51 for Trump, 38 for DeSantis. And if you throw in the other Nikki Haley, Tim Scott and so forth, actually Trump is up uh, 24 points over DeSantis. So what do you make of that? Kelly, you know, the boss, the old boss, he's, I don't know, people keep counting him out. And um, I don't know, right this minute, I had a, a, I bumped into an old friend of mine, a Wall Street Journal reporter from Washington, from the Washington office, who says to me, uh, 
and he's not a Trump guy, but he said, you know, right now it's better than 50-50. Trump's going to be president again. What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt um, that he has had a surge in the polls um, in the aftermath of, of that really unjust indictment, which even legal commentators have noted was totally unfounded by Alvin Bragg, total, uh, Bragg, total political move. Um, so you've seen him surge in the polls. Um, I think senior people um, in the governor's orbit would, would argue that they look at the favorability ratings in that poll and they say DeSantis is double digits higher than Trump among Republicans. So I think they see some encouragement in the polls. Governor DeSantis hasn't even announced yet. Um, but this is an uphill climb. I mean, our, our former boss, President Trump, he is he's dominant in these polls, um, nevertheless. And not only that, he's really zeroing in on something he's very good at, which is retail politics. Last night, he had this viral moment. I mean, I saw Trump trending on social media today. And I click it, and he had this moment where he went to a pizza shop in Fort Myers mm. and ate a piece of pizza just with everyday Americans. And you just see um, his his smile and his likability in that scene. Uh, he did something similar in Iowa. So, mm. you know, President Trump, if he really locks into a policy message, engages in those retail politics stops, um, it does feel like he could be unstoppable. But, you know, Governor DeSantis, a warrior in his own right. I'm a Floridian. So, of course, I, I love my governor there. Um, he's taken on some pretty big policy battles with, with Disney, uh, signing the six-week heartbeat, heartbeat bill. So I think he will try to cleave to the right of President Trump and illustrate some policy contrast there. And, you know, we'll see if he can do that on a debate stage. That's what it all comes down to. You know, Kelly, I got to tell you, uh, from my perspective, and I, I respect Ron DeSantis, and he's been a good governor, but I think this obsession he has and continuing fight with Walt Disney is hurting him. It's uh, showing him to be uh, ineffectual. And um, our pal Kellyanne Conway says this, that it's too much woke and not enough economic growth and prosperity and inflation. And he's got a you know, Florida has a great record on the economy, let's say compared to New York or, or California, but he's not doing that. He's just, he's fighting, he's fighting Mickey Mouse and, and it's not, it's hurting him. It makes him look ineffective. And, you know, some people are saying Trump would have settled this thing in, you know, one meeting. Well, you've seen it with a Diet Coke and a Hershey bar in, in, in the dining room behind the Oval Office. But um, I think the Santa's made a big mistake here. You know, um, Kellyanne's a, a brilliant pollster, um, no doubt about it. And, you know, I, I trust her word on, on a lot of these matters. But where I disagree is that, you know, there is something really big going on in corporate America. I, I know you see it. I know Kellyanne sees it. Um, the woke corporate America embracement of the trans movement, um, really forcing it on our children. Uh, Disney, of course, opposing that kindergarten through third grade legislation to keep sexuality out of schools, which is just common sense. Mm. So, you know, I think the governor, politically speaking, um, was smart to take this on, was smart to make himself the opponent of Disney World. And I think on a debate stage, he's going to say, look, I took on Disney. I took on corporate America. I'm the fighter against wokeism. Um, and, and you see that in, in my really gritty fight against Disney. So I think he can use it to great effect. But to your point, to your point, uh, touting the economic record of Florida is not something we hear a ton from the governor currently. He still hasn't declared. We still haven't heard his big, you know, coming out speech. But um, that is something that you're right. He doesn't get the reputation for, though he's done a great job. Um, and he's got to make that the focus. Because I can tell you, President Trump, you know, his message is going to be 
been there, done that, and can do it again. Um, And that is a very strong message because we saw what he did with the federal government for four years. I sent you the Wall Street Journal editorial, Florida versus New York, uh, which is something that I did on the air twice. In fact, I wrote, I don't know, one or two columns about it on, let's see, if you live in New York, if you live in New York City, your state and local tax is 14.8%. If you live in Miami, Florida, your state and local tax is zero. Now, I, I would I would want to promote that. And Florida has a higher population than New York. They passed New York in population. But the Florida budget is half the size of New York. And meanwhile, Florida is growing three times as fast with an unemployment rate that is uh, half again as low as New York. Now, if I were he, uh, I'd be talking about that. If I were DeSantis, I'd be talking about that. It's right, you know, yeah, that, it, the prosperity agenda, Kelly. You, you remember when you were the press secretary, right, you'd get an economic number, you'd, you'd send me an email, and I'd give you the bullets back. You know, that it's, it's just as hot now as it was a few years ago. For, for sure. I, look, I shouldn't be learning those numbers from you, right? You know, I should be learning these in a campaign ad uh, yeah. for the governor. Yeah. Um, but we, we haven't seen that. Again, it's premature. He hasn't gotten out gotten out there and, and declared candidacy yet. But there's a lot of people, um, at least the reporting suggests, in his inner circle that say, hey, where are you out there? Um, you know, President Trump's been out there. He's making these stops. We saw him in Fort Myers yesterday. Uh, he's going to Iowa. And I, I know the governor's on a book tour, but wh- where are you out there making this message in a campaign fashion, mm. um, I think is a really, really good point. Um, and, you know, I, when you're taking on President Trump, you are taking on a, a gargantuan in Republican politics. And, yeah. um, you know, I never bet against him. And, and when you do bet against him, you often end up wrong. But Republican voters, you know, they'll make that determination. But I think you're you're spot on uh, with that economic message that we haven't had too, heard too much of just yet. No, I'm waiting for DeSantis to call. He hadn't called. <laughs> so I'm, I, so <laughs> I, I'm just doing it on the air with you. Uh, anyway, on the other side of the coin, uh, it's interesting with the Democrats, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is not going to be president. But Robert F. Kennedy Jr. throws his hat in the ring. Right? I know. I know. Uh, uh, Bob Kennedy. You know, I used to, he used to come on my old CNBC show uh, on climate change stuff. But so he throws his hat in the ring, Kelly, and um, he's got he gets fourteen percent support. And then the other one, uh, the other gal, Williamson, uh, I think she has four or five percent. And um, then there's a lot of undecideds. And we really, I do not see how Joe Biden can make this race. I do not see it physically. And he's so unpopular and his disapprovals are so high. And I was wondering, I guess my question to you is, um, with Kennedy in the race getting 14 percent, is that open the door for others? You know, whether it's Gavin Newsom or Pritzker or whoever the heck is going to run more established candidates with more resources than Bob Kennedy. You think this is the beginning? I mean, here, just last one. I don't mean to prattle on, but. Uh, Kennedy throws Kennedy makes his announcement on on Thursday and that Thursday afternoon, the White House political people say they start putting the word out that Biden's going to announce on Tuesday. So all of a sudden, Kennedy triggered that response. Now, I just wonder what else Kennedy's going to trigger. 
I, I think you couldn't be more accurate on that. I look the the White House. I think would tell you, oh no, we're you know we're doing this April announcement date uh, because it's the anniversary of when Biden announced you know four years ago. Uh, not only that, he has international trips coming up, and we have debt ceiling negotiations, so this is the time period. Um, the problem is Axios had reported that Biden was going to wait until the fall. He had no reason to get in. Republicans were looking chaotic, and he's going to let them do their chaotic primary and mm. come in. Uh, you know, in the fall. Well, all of a sudden, you're exactly right. That changed in a 24-hour frame, uh, I think, because of Robert Kennedy and his double-digit polling. And I think what lends even more credence to your theory is Biden is announcing Tuesday, according to The Washington Post, with a video on Twitter. I mean, you would think you're the sitting president. You have every resource at your disposal, and you're not announcing in front of a massive crowd with the, like, aura of, like, Air Force One in the background. What are you doing? So I I think you're exactly right. I hadn't seen that part. I'm going to go and read that. Kaylee McEnany, the name of the book, Serenity in the Storm, Living Through Chaos by Leaning on Christ, Wonderful Lady. Thank you so much for coming on, folks. I'm uh, Kudlow. We'll be back uh, other side of the break. Larry Kudlow. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And we bring on Mark Calabria, who is now the Cato Institute Senior Advisor and co-founder of Cato Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, uh, Mark was a former director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, and uh, he's got a good book out. It's called Shelter from the Storm, How a COVID Mortgage Meltdown Was Averted. Uh, Mark, welcome back. Uh, I want to talk to you about, you know what, this crazy okay. mortgage business. It's kind of like uh, it doesn't even take from the rich and give to the poor. It's take from the middle class and give to the poor. So let me get this right. If I have a... If I built my FICA score up, let's say I'm recovering from the COVID. You know, I might have lost my job, but I've recovered. I've got my my FICA score back up to 680 or 700, and I built up a nest egg so I can make a down payment of 15 or 20% on a house, which is the American dream. The uh, Biden administration is going to penalize me. They're going to penalize me. For playing by the rules and working hard and all the rest of it, what is up with this? You, I mean, this is from the uh, this is from the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which you ran under Trump. What what are these people doing? Well, I mean, Larry, fundamentally, they want to push us all toward everybody paying the same same price for risk. And, and you and you touched upon a great point, which is. You know, despite probably a common perception that poor risks are low income, uh, you and I probably know lots of high income people who have poor credit. Mm, <laughs> you yes. know, and it's only a loose correlation at best. And this is really an attempt to, to force better credit. And again, as you've talked about, you know, people who have spent their life paying their bills, doing the right thing, playing by the rules so that they can have that 800 or 850 credit score you know, and being forced to cross-subsidize, you know, people who haven't, people who haven't learned. And again, not dismissing tough things that have happened to people sometimes, but again, this push away from having the price of credit reflect the actual risk, and it does reflect the risk. Uh, Borrower credit scores are extremely good predictors of default. So mm-hmm. this is this is the science. And, and again, the view of the administration largely is that it's all luck. You know, if you have 
you know, an 850 credit score, it's just because you, you, you lucked out, you know, you had great parents or, you know, you woke up one day and suddenly you're a good credit. They don't look at this in terms of you've done the right thing. You played by the rules. And of course, it's important to keep in mind, you know, you and I, economists, and, and interest rates are prices. And if you're paying a lot more for a mortgage because you might have not have good credit, that's an important signal to you, the borrower, that maybe you should spend some time fixing your credit. And we know that when you mess with prices, when you mess with the, with the price of risk, people themselves make bad decisions. So this isn't even good for the borrowers at the end of the day. It's going to lure a lot of people in who aren't ready for homeownership. And we should really certainly take you know pride in the fact that throughout the Obama administration, you saw eight years of declining homeownership. And I believe Obama was the first president in history where the black homeownership fell over his term. Mm. That changed during Trump. And why did it change? Because we created an, an era of prosperity, of job growth, income growth. We didn't do it with gimmicks in the mortgage market. We made it sustainable. Uh, and again, you've seen all of that thrown away, and they're really just trying to reverse this, where it's just pushing anybody into a loan, regardless of risk, and hope it all works out. Mark, I mean... I thought we learned 15 years ago during the financial meltdown and the meltdown of Fannie and Freddie, which was bailed out by nearly $200 billion. $191 billion was the number we found. But um, I thought we learned that, you know, if, if, if people can't afford a mortgage, just giving it to them with subsidies will put them in a bad spot. They'll default, they'll go bankrupt, and meanwhile the loan will go sour and that's what did Fannie and Freddie in. I mean, I thought I thought we learned all that. <laughs> you, you and I certainly did. And I could, uh, you know, the rest of Washington did not. I mean, and you're 100 percent right. This is bad for the taxpayer. Ultimately, it's bad for the borrower. It's one of the reasons why, you know, it, 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 the, the, the reprivatization of Fannie and Freddie and getting them to be private companies, that's got to be completed because else they're just going to be looked at as slush funds that can be used for redistribution in the same way the student loan program. There are many of us who said, you know, back in 2009, 2010, that when the government took over the student loan program, it wasn't going to end well, you know, and here we are. And so you need to get these things back into the private sector. And, you know, there's this, I think, myth out there that somehow all the bad practices of 2008 went away. But, you know, in the last two years, you've seen the administration open up the credit box. They've really brought back a lot of troublesome policies. These, you know, I think one of the reasons that families, one of the reasons, not the only, but many, one of the many reasons that families did so well during COVID in terms of surviving that shock is because we spent a lot of time getting people into good loans. We mm. improved the credit quality standards. And of course, you know, 2019 was the best economy of my lifetime. And, you know, I'm a little younger than you, so maybe mm. you have a memory there. But, you know, we really put people on a strong foundation. And this is the thing that's just heartbreaking. They're setting a lot of people up for failure. I mean, again, it's bad enough what's going to happen to the taxpayer. It's bad enough what's going to happen to the financial system. But a lot of these families are going to be lulled into, like, getting, getting into a mortgage. And as we all know, the mortgage, the housing market is deflating now. So it's, you know, you're getting people in at the absolute worst time. Mm. They're not going to be building equity. Uh, you know, we may or may not see a recession. So if they lose their job, they're potentially going to lose everything they put into the house. 
So this is a time where you want to try to help people survive what may be a stressed environment rather than putting them at risk. So, I, I, you know, again, but this isn't a one-off, as you and I have touched upon. This reflects a general philosophy from this administration that if you've got good credit, you didn't earn it, you just somehow it happened to you, you didn't build that, as uh, mm. some of our friends have said, um, but that, you know, it's sort of a, a subsidy, entitlement, and that the financial system is not meant as an allocator, uh, efficient allocator of risk, but in their mind, this financial system is just another way to redistribute subsidies. Um, Mark Calabria, who's at Cato now, used to run the Federal Housing Finance Agency. The book is Shelter from the Storm, How COVID Mortgage Meltdown Was Averted. Mark, in the last minute or so, I mean, this is consistent, I think, with the socialist philosophy, central planning philosophy. Yeah. It's trying, they're always trying to rearrange the deck chairs, uh, take from the rich, give to the poor. But in this case, I think it's take from the middle class and give to the poor. And absolutely, because, I mean, for instance, I mean, even though I guess the loan limit for Fannie and Freddie now is up to a million, but so anybody who's the super wealthy, A, predominantly buy homes with cash, actually don't yeah. really take mortgages. Yeah. Uh, and if they are taking mortgages, it's jumbo. So this really is a redistribution from the middle, upper middle class, mm. uh, you know, and even within that, as you touched upon, it's a redistribution from those who've done the right thing and built good credit to those who haven't. Yeah, it's a really bad policy. Anyway, Mark Calabria of Cato Institute, thanks ever so much for clarifying that. Folks, we'll take a quick break. And on the other side, uh, media personality Joe Concha, my pal, he'll come on. We're going to talk some more politics. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to bring in my pal Joe Concha, media and politics columnist for The Hill and Fox News contributor and author of the very good book, Come On, Man, The Truth About Biden's No Good, Horrible, Very Bad Presidency and How to Return America to Greatness, which I believe we can, Joe Concha. Talk to me. Um, I don't. Let's see. You were on the show the day before. You were on the TV show the day before uh, Bob Kennedy Jr. announced. Actually, it was a day after because we discussed how oh. I, I could not get over the fact that Joe Biden is doesn't have one third of support of oh. those who voted for him in 2020. All right, because 14 percent goes to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. 5% goes somehow to Marianne Williamson, and then the rest goes to a player to be named later. In other words, <laughs> yeah. anybody but Biden. This isn't That's like Republicans right. saying this independence. These are people that voted for Biden, and, and, and one-third of them don't want him to run again. It's remarkable, considering this is the guy who apparently got 81 million votes. Yeah, you're right. You were on. That's correct. You know, I don't know if you saw the Wall Street Journal editorial, Biden's second-term mistake. Uh, age is only one of the reasons the president shouldn't run again. I mean, I don't know if he's going to make it through the first term. Hey, whether you like him or not, you can see his frailties and infirmities growing. Yeah. And then you've got Kamala Harris. I mean, really, do we want Kamala Harris? I don't. I don't Jeez. think so. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'll be proven wrong about that. But here's one thing they're saying, Joe Concha. Enemies size up leaders as much as they do nations when they make their calculations to seize territory. 
or seek other strategic advantages, there's a strong case to believe that Vladimir Putin decided to invade Ukraine in part because he judged that Biden lacked the determination to resist after the retreat in Afghanistan. And, you know, with the inf- these leaders, Xi and Putin, I mean, these are killers, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, they look at Biden and, you know, they see a weak guy. I mean, they see a frail guy. All right. Again, whether you like Biden's philosophy or not, he's in lousy shape. How the hell is he going to get through a second term? He shouldn't even run. Age is certainly a huge factor. We see it. We see his schedule every day where he has maybe one event early afternoon. Sometimes they call a lit at 9 a.m. He's away every single weekend, and it's never your standard weekend like most people have. It's leave early on Friday, come back on Monday. Mm. And, 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 you know, people want to see a president who at least puts forth an effort, one that works, and he doesn't because he doesn't have the physical ability to do this anymore, right? And, And here's the thing, though. The age argument is only so much of this equation. He has always been incompetent, Larry. I know this because I researched his entire life and all the decisions that he's made over the years. And if you remember, his defense secretary in the Obama-Biden administration, his name was Robert Gates. And Gates said publicly, while Biden was still vice president, that Joe Biden has never been right about any major foreign policy decision throughout his entire career. Mm. Okay, So between the fact that, yes, he looks weak and he looks frail, and there's a reason why Vladimir Putin didn't go into Ukraine from 2017 until 2021 when Donald Trump was in office because he saw a strong leader there. He saw what happened in Afghanistan, as as you said, where what we, we allowed the Taliban mm. to handle our exit. We didn't secure our own airfield so we can do it on our own. I mean, the decisions are incredible. And then Biden actually has the temerity to say that, well, I had to stick to Donald Trump's peace agreement that he that he drew up. It's, no, you didn't. You, you reversed every single policy this guy had yeah. in the first hundred days. But, oh, that one you had to stick to, right? So what, what can you say, Larry? I mean, every decision he makes when it comes to economy, inflation, he spends more and more money and thinks that's going to lower inflation. Here it is, still above 6%. Mm. And then on crime, same thing. Uh, you would think he would denounce district attorneys like Alvin Bragg and the clown in Chicago and saying, why are you guys moving all? All these, fel- these felonies down to misdemeanors doesn't say a word about that doesn't back the blue the way he should and obviously the border which is a crisis no it's a catastrophe what's going on there where nearly 200 people on the terror watch list mm. have been arrested those are the ones we know about and forget about all the fentanyl coming in as well so i could go on and on and on as far as joe biden and yes he should not be in the oval office until age 86 and that's what would happen if he won a second term, and that's an unthinkable prospect. But throughout his entire life, he has shown there's a reason why he shouldn't be president, because he's wrong, basically, about every instinct he has. He's mm. like George Costanza. Go opposite day, Mr. Biden. <laughs> Do the opposite, and it will be right. Believe me. George Costanza. That's great. <laughs> I get it. I get it. No, no. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm culturally impoverished, but I got that. Oh. Um, Joe Concha, what does the Bob Kennedy entrance with his 14 percent, does that open the door finally to other Democratic candidates, you think? I would hope so, because Joe Biden clearly is vulnerable here and there is an appetite within that party not to have him run again for all the reasons that I just mentioned. 
So if Kennedy can get 14%, what can Joe Manchin get, I wonder? Mm-hmm. If he announced and went in, and I, I know you'd love to see him run, yeah, uh, there's definitely a lane for him as far as you know the old blue dog, moderate Democrats mm-hmm. who, who just want sanity back in some way, shape, or form. Uh, if Gavin Newsom were to jump in, I think that would be very problematic for, for Biden, which, again, let me be clear to the audience – if the bumper sticker is make America like California, uh, that's not going to win, I don't think, ultimately in the general, considering how poorly that state is run. I mean, U-Haul has the stats, right? More people are leaving California than any state in the country, and they're going to, coincidentally enough, Florida and Texas, which are run by Republican governors. So, But, but I think still Newsom can get a lot of support within that party because, boy, that hair looks good, and, boy, he can give a good speech, and, boy, he's progressive, so – yeah, I think it could be a problem. But Democrats have shown, forget about the outliers like Kennedy and Marianne Williamson, they usually stick together for the most part. And that would really take some major cajones, for lack of a better term, because it's a G-rated show, uh, for like a Newsom or a Manchin to jump in. Even though Manchin probably feels pretty – it doesn't feel like he recognizes this party anymore, right? It's not your daddy's donkeys. Uh, so I can see Manchin jumping in. I just wonder if that would be enough to – pose like a ted kennedy kind of threat uh like he did in 1980 to jimmy carter we um we could be an r-rated show oh good i, I don't know, I, I gotta ask kevin here <laughs> no he's shake he's shaking and said no we're g-rated you're oh, right. kevin shut the I'm gonna, front door i'm gonna stay with g what about, the other one i'm waiting to hear from is uh pritzker governor of illinois again he's a super progressive guy but you know He's very ambitious. Everybody tells me he's dying to run, and he's a very rich guy. He's self-financed. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised he hasn't made more more noise. Look, I, you know, Joe Manchin, uh, I like Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin broke my heart when he voted for the inflation, misnamed Inflation Reduction Act. <laughs> but Joe is an old-fashioned uh you're right, blue blue dog Democrat. I mean, that would be a lot of fun. And he would get, I would bet you right off, the, if Bobby Kennedy's got 14%, um, I'll bet you Joe Manchin would get 25 35% right away. Oh, easy, right yeah. away, you know? And, and, and he has media savvy, Larry, right? I mean, he does interviews everywhere. He will yeah. go on any network, and, and he can handle those uh, Q&As for the most part. So, yeah, I would love to see that. As for uh, Pritzker in, in Illinois, he should run to a gym, like right away. Because, you know, <laughs> we don't elect fat presidents anymore, right? I mean, let's really think about this. And people say, ah, Donald Trump is a little overweight. Uh, Trump wore clothes well that, that, that hides it for the most part. But Pritzker, I mean, that that's... That guy looks like he's about to go into his third trimester. And, again, it's the same thing as California, by the way. Okay, so make America Illinois? I mean, look what's happening in Chicago. (laughs) No, I know. (laughs) It's insane. So I don't know what record these guys run on. I guess the the, the goal is just to show who could be the most progressive, right, who could be the most woke. Uh, Does that win a general? Does that win you votes in the key states that matter? Let's face it, Larry, elections come down to six states at this point. All the the, the, the other 44, forget about them, okay? It comes down to Florida, mm. comes down to Georgia, comes down to Arizona, comes down to Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yeah, I yeah. can't even put Ohio in there anymore because Ohio's no. like turned red at this point. Even Florida, for that matter, take them off the map, North, right? And maybe like throw North Carolina. North Carolina there too. It's uh, yeah. I, I tend to think you're right. What about is the argument that um, Charlie Hurt made last night on the show uh, that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. may become the anti-war candidate? And that that could be a problem for Joe Biden, even in the Dem- I mean, in the Democratic Party. I heard Charlie say that, and 
it's a good point. I just wonder, are Americans really engaged as far as this Russia-Ukraine war mm. at, at this point? It seems like there's an apathy around it. it. It's ongoing. It's been going on now for 16 months, but I rarely hear anything about it anymore because it's at such a stalemate. No one's advancing anywhere. The Russians just keep throwing bodies at the problem. Putin doesn't care. Mm. And Ukraine has better weapons than they do. So they, they kind of just are holding territory, particularly in the East, and nothing's happening. So I wonder if that is really something that's top of mind for the American people because we've you know, American troops mm. aren't dying there. So will it be an issue? Yes. Can anti-war get him up into that 25, 30 percent? I'm not sure. I just find it funny that, you know, the, the two top candidates on the Democratic side are named Biden and Kennedy. Yeah. <laughs> I thought they're supposed to be progressive and young. And nope, nope. All, all, the, all the same names. Hillary should just run at this point. Why not? No, no, I can't take that. I know I, you can't. I, take I that. just could not. But what Const- would she generated constitutionally. I could not take that. I, <laughs> and, and in fact, I don't think the country could take it either. But uh, it is interesting to me that uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. jumps in and gets his fourteen percent. Very, very interesting. Just out of the blue, and I think that tells you something that the Democrats—they're uh, looking around. Democratic Party's looking around. Anyway, uh, Joe Concha. The name of the book, incidentally, come on, man. The truth about Biden's no good, horrible, very bad presidency. Thank you, Joe. We appreciate it. Well, Folks, we're going to take, take a quick break. And on the other side of the break, we're going to talk about the economy with John Carney of Breitbart News. I'm Kudlow. Stick around, folks. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow, and we're going to bring in John Carney, Breitbart News Editor, Economics and Finance, and co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest, which is must-read. John, welcome. So we got to figure this out. I'm reading the Business Digest every day. I got April 21st, economic growth accelerated again in April. I got April 20th, faltering IT sales and leading indicators point to recession. And then I got April 18th, two-thirds of Americans say their wages lag behind inflation. Now, maybe it's all true, actually. You're you're looking at this uh, S&P PMI thing. You think that's really um, – you think that's really accurate? I do. Um, so, so one of the things I've been – tracking is that this uh, Chris Williamson, who does the S&P Global uh, PMI, uh, has actually been really good at tracking how the U.S. domestic economy is developing. It's a little different from uh, the the competing uh, purchasing managers Mm. index um, in that this one actually tends to be focused a little bit more on domestic companies. And so it's a little less exposed to the, the globe, the the bigger global companies. Mm. Uh, But I think this is right. And so what we're seeing is a very strange thing happening in the economy, right? Which I wrote about actually just a few weeks ago, which is we are definitely heading to a recession that is going to happen. It's just not happening yet. You and I have talked about this before. Yeah. It's the world's most heralded recession yeah. Yeah. that that just keeps getting delayed. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the leading indicators tell us recession is happening. The uh, yield curve tells us recession is happening. If you look at things like 
Uh, you know, 41% of people, according to the latest Harvard-Harris poll, say we're already in a recession. And another 39% say we're going to have a recession in the next 12 months. So, mm. yes, we are going to have a recession, but it hasn't happened yet. And one of the things that means is inflation is going to run hotter than a lot of people expect, including people at the Federal Reserve. Um, the LEI came out last week. It was down again. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it that's down another for nail. The 12th month in a row. Yep. Um, and that, by the way, is the longest streak of declining leading indicators mm. uh, since 2008. 2007, 2008, when we, you know, obviously we had a financial crisis and the leading indicators tanked, but we haven't had 12 months of declines mm. since then. And what, one of the things like the, the hardcore economists will tell you is it's not just the depth of the decline, but the duration. And so when you have a decline for that long, you know you're go, you are going to head into a recession. But the question is, when right and mm. so it is an indicator that a recession is going to happen within the next 12 months but is it going to happen you know it, a lot of people thought we would be in a recession already in the first quarter we weren't it doesn't look like we're in our, we're going to be in a recession in the second quarter that's what the latest S&P global PMI tells us so is it the third quarter fourth quarter i think we may now be looking at a recession that doesn't begin until the end of this year mm. and maybe the beginning of next year boy an election year recession that's going to make it awful hard on the federal reserve um i mean christopher waller basically actually not just him federal reserve board member but you heard it from john williams New York Fed president and the permanent vice chair of the FOMC. He's a smart guy, too. I mean, they're both signaling higher uh, Fed target rates. In fact, you know, John Carney, I think um, I think those guys are saying a couple of rate hikes are coming because even I was so interested. Williams, I don't know if you ever meet a very smart man. You know, he's a, he, basically one of these whiz kid was a whiz kid econometrician when he was younger. Um, you know, I would say he's kind of a mild Keynesian. Uh, I think Chris Waller is much more of a free market supply sider. But be that as it may, um, his statement was that the inflation rate that the Fed watches, the PCE deflator, would come down to 3.5% by the end of the year. But, he said, John, that's too high. So I read that with great interest. I don't know if he's going to be right or not. Right now, the PCE, I think, is around four and a half to five. But be that as it may, what he's saying is we're sticking with our 2% target, which means they're going to have, you know, I think that that target rate could go to 6%. Currently, yeah, I think they, currently I, five. I think they are having, it's, so we, we heard from Williams, as you said, Bullard mm-hmm. also said he thinks that the rate has to go up to probably the top end of five point. Seven five, mm. and that's by the way. But he said that before we got this latest PMI that showed the economy reaccelerating. Mm. Uh, we heard from uh, Waller also said, you know, indicated it was going high, and Loretta Messer. So that's that, that, that's a lot of people mm-hmm. uh, to who are saying that inflation is too high, and that and I think they are tipping us off, frankly, that the market is wrong right now in the expectation that there's only one more hike left, 
right? Everybody, mm-hmm. right now it's priced in, yeah, they're going to hike in May and then not hike at all for two months and then start cutting. That seems to be wrong based on what we're seeing about the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the PMIs say inflation is accelerating. They say the economy picked up. And interestingly, inflation, not just in the services sector, which people sort of expected, but even in the even in manufacturing, Hmm. which, you know, we were supposed to be doing this great transition from, you know, people buying goods to people spending on services. And that was expected to have a disinflationary effect on the goods side. What the latest S&P global numbers say is it's actually not continuing that it worked for it happened in February and March. But April saw a reacceleration of prices. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it's so interesting. John Williams spoke to the money marketeers, which is a very old and distinguished, uh, you know, kind of a bond market group here in New York. And all the Wall Street economists go to those meetings. I used to go to them. And then later in life, I spoke at them. But, um, you know, you got a 10 year note at three fifty six. And um, a two-year note at 418. I mean, I think I've never seen a situation where the bond market is so at loggerheads with what these Fed bigwigs are saying. And right. I, the, the they, they just have was supposed to be you can't fight the Fed. Yeah, <laughs> but they are fighting they are. the Fed. Yeah. And, very, yeah. and even it, it almost seems like every time these guys come out and say, Hey, look, this is crazy. We're not cutting rates this year. Mm-hmm. The market just totally ignores that, right? Like, for, like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a hawk on this. I think they're actually going to have to go to, you know, Bullard's 575 or, you know, higher than that 6%. Yeah. Um, I felt 6% the market, too. The market, the market has it down to like to, you know, 4% by the end of the year. Mm. I think that's wrong. I, I don't. I don't see, first of all, because I don't think that the economy is deteriorating as rapidly as people think. I think also that people over uh, thought that we would have a bigger pullback in lending after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. And again, we've seen some pullback. The latest uh, beige book from the Fed said, you know, some pullback, but there was nothing extreme in there. No, you know, no like cutoff of credit, you know, no big break Mm. was mentioned, you know, except maybe in, you know, California, uh, maybe in New York, there was a little bit, but for the rest of the country, it was a, you know, a slight tightening, not a major tightening of lending. So I don't see where the pullback comes from. All right, John Carney. Breitbart, you got to read his Breitbart Business Digest for the daily stuff. It's really fantastic and the regular on Cudlow now. John, you've been great stuff. Thanks for coming on again, folks. I'm Cudlow. We're going to take a little break. Uh, Senator Ron Johnson, if we can find him. I know he's uh, traveling around Wisconsin, but he's supposed to come on anyway. We'll take a quick break and talk to Senator Ron Johnson in Wisconsin. I'm Cudlow. Please stay with us. Larry Cudlow. The Larry Cudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We are um, trying to get Senator Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, who's traveling on the road. Maybe we'll connect with him, uh, cell phone to cell phone, whatever. But I'll just tell you, you know, we talked a little bit about this at the top of the show, and um, I don't mind talking about it again. 
What we learned this week in the Hunter Biden scandal, the Hunter Biden computer scandal, uh, is very revealing, okay? A couple things came out this week. Number one, this uh, senior IRS analyst wants to testify, and he wants immunity or he wants a whistleblower immunity. And uh, the Justice Department, Merrick Garland, has been uh, slow walking it, dragging their feet. So he's going to go to, uh, I guess, the Ways and Means Committee. Um, Jason Smith is the new chairman, Republican chairman. So this IRS guy will get his day in court. But he's making the allegation that, quote-unquote, a senior official uh, has not told the truth to a congressional committee under oath. And uh, many people believe that senior official is Merrick Garland, okay? I, I don't know that yet. We don't, no one knows that yet. But that's what this IRS uh, guy's lawyer seems to be hinting. We'll find out more. But here's what I know. Here's what we all know. You've had this guy Weiss, the U.S. attorney in Delaware. His name is Weiss. He was a Trump appointee, has been investigating Hunter Biden uh, with a grand jury for five years. No, yeah, almost five years. It started in 2019. And now we're in 23. So 2019, 2020, 21, two, now we're in 23. Just, you know, we're in our fifth year. And there are charges here that everybody knows about. Right. Now, maybe this is wrong, but people have said uh, some kind of unregistered gun or, or ca- gun carrying uh, and tax evasion. Now, there may be other things. I, re- I recall an um, uh, allegation of a charge that um, Mr. Hunter Biden did not register as a foreign agent. All right, that was another one that was out there besides tax evasion and besides the uh, the gun carry problem. So how do you, how can you have a five-year grand jury? Well, then you, you've got another problem, and uh, the other problem is with respect to the charge of tax evasion, that his income sources came from all over the place. Now, a lot of these income sources, of course, come from Ukraine and China, God knows where, uh, because of the influence peddling, which is what this whole story is about, influence peddling. But on the tax charge, um, you need other U.S. attorneys to cooperate with Mr. Weiss from other income sources, right? And so... This is another allegation. I'm not saying these are facts. I'm saying these are alleged charges that, you know, these U.S. attorneys who were appointed by Biden report to Merrick Garland. Now, the Trump U.S. attorney who's still there, he reports to Garland, too. But the idea was that Garland was slow walking any cooperation between these other U.S. attorneys and Mr. Weiss. Now, I don't know these that that is true. I'm just saying this is what has been reported 
uh, as allegations. All right, I want to be very clear on this. Um, so we will see. The point that I was making, however, at the top of the show, and I'm going to stay with this point, is that one of the things we learned this week, which I think is terribly important, in the hearings before the the House Judiciary Committee, that's Jim Jordan, uh, is a great friend of mine, been on this show many, many times down through the years. Uh, He's the chairman. And anyway, under oath, uh, the former deputy director, the number two guy at the CIA, his name is Mike Morell. He's a big Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Democratic partisan, which, of course, you're not supposed to be in the CIA. But putting that aside, he testified. uh, Yeah, he helped put that letter together, the famous letter with the 51 uh, big shot intelligence people, you know, John Brennan and all these people, um, Beltway people, D.C. Swamp people, Democrats, hate Trump, right? And they lied, and they said the Hunter Biden laptop, with all of its uh, gory information, the story came off the New York Post in the uh, in October, I think, of 2020 during the election campaign, might have been September, I don't recall. And um, they put this letter together saying it was Russian disinformation. Okay, Russian disinformation. Now, what we learned from Mike Morell, the deputy CIA guy, is that the actual quarterback, the guy who was pushing Morell and others to get this letter together which said Russian disinformation in the New York Post was wrong, was Antony Blinken, who has, as you know, been the Secretary of State. The most senior position in the cabinet of the United States government. Now, here's my point. This letter was phony, bunch of lies. We learned later that the New York Post story about the Hunter Biden laptop was exactly right. You got Johnson. Okay, we're going to bring in Senator Johnson. I don't know why I'm babbling on. I want Senator Johnson to talk about this because Senator Johnson is a good friend and secondly has done his own inquiries with Senator Grassley. So first of all, Senator Johnson, thank you for coming on. We appreciate it. Sorry for the technical difficulty. Not a problem. Not a problem. Never a problem. I'm just, I have been railing on. Uh, I said, start out my show last night. I wrote a column about it, sir. I was talking about it this morning. That this um, Hunter Biden laptop, this letter by the 51 Intel people, which was a bunch of lies. The New York Post had the story right way back during the campaign before the second debate. My point, sir, was that Anthony Blinken was the quarterback behind this. This is what Mike Morrell, the CIA, told Jim Jordan's Judiciary Committee. And that is sleazy. That infuriates me. That is a political dirty trick, and he should not be the Secretary of State. And you wouldn't have caught Mike Pompeo or George Shultz or Democrat Madeleine Albright engaging in political dirty tricks for campaign purposes. That's something that... 
has just come out. Now, maybe you knew that, but I didn't know that. Oh, Larry, let's face it. What, what are the Democrats, what are the mainstream media been screaming about in 2016 and 2017 is that, you know, Russian interfered in the election and, you know, threw it to, to Trump. What the Democrats did, what the Biden campaign did, what the FBI did, what our intelligence officials did, they interfered into our election in 2020 to a far greater extent than anything mm. China or Russia ever could have contemplated. And now the, the man who spearheaded that lie is Secretary of State. Yes. Uh, so is, is the media going to start screaming about election interference when we have real election interference? Let's face it, the, the whole deal about the Russian collusion hoax with Trump is the president could be so compromised if he has that kind of relationship with the foreign government. Well, Chuck Grass and I, we proved there were millions of dollars being transferred from communist China, from Russia, from Ukraine to compromise a President Biden. I guess they're OK with that. Mm. This is sleazy. This should be outrageous. The media should be all over this. But pretty much silence, right, except for on talk radio like this and a few conservative news stations. Uh, it, it, it is such a double standard. Uh, the biased, the complicit, the com- uh, compliant and the corrupt media is is the danger of our, to our democracy. You know, Senator Johnson, I look, I'm, I'm sticking with this Blinken thing because Secretary of State is senior most position in the cabinet of the United States government. I've served two turns, once under Reagan, once under Trump. I know something about this. You know something about this now as a, as a longtime senator. The point is, this guy Blinken was engaged in a dirty trick. He was behind the letter signed by the 51 Intel people, which said that the uh, New York Post story about the Hunter Biden laptop was nothing more than uh, than uh, Russian disinformation. Blinken quarterbacked a dirty trick, and he winds up as Secretary of State. I just think that is so sleazy and pathetic and disgusting. And I think the, the media should be all over this. This is new information to us. You don't have political dirty tricksters as the senior most guy in the American government. It, you know, calling it a dirty trick minimizes it. No offense. Yeah. This is a massive fraud. This is a massive, this is a big lie. Yeah. Remember, the FBI had Hunter Biden's computer in December 2019. They intimidated McIsaac by saying, hey, you know, if you don't talk about this, you won't get in trouble. And then they proceeded to give us, you know, Senator Grassley and I, briefings, say that we were targets so that in case we ever heard about it, that we would be questioning it. Senator uh, Johnson, they, you got, uh, are you rushing off to another meeting? Well, uh, you are. I, 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 yeah, I really. All am. right, you Sorry go ahead. That. We're run out of time. I'm sorry. We can do this. We're going to get you on the TV show this week if you got some time for us. I want to talk to you some more about this and maybe even some of the debt ceiling stuff too. Anyway, folks, great American, dear friend, Senator Ron Johnson. I'm Cudlow. We're going to take a break. On the other side of the break, we'll uh, do some stock market work. Okay, stay with us, folks. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. This is, I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We're reset. Come watch us during the week. Fox Business Network. The name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. If you can't make it at 4, text your favorite nine-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. And right here, you can listen to us on the Internet, live streaming. 
LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com, across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. And it's time to do some stock market work. It's a very boring week. I mean, the stock market was extremely boring. Let's see. The Dow was off 85 points, 33,801. NASDAQ down 43. S&P 500 down 8 points, 41.29.30. Interest rates, what did interest rates do? Interest rates went up a little bit. The 10-year note is 356, call it three and a half, the three months. But I don't think the talking to John Carney uh, of Breitbart Business a couple of minutes ago, I don't know what the bond market's thinking, but the Fed's going to tighten. They're going to tighten several more times before this game is over. Anyway, let's talk to our distinguished experts. We have the great Stephanie Link, chief investment strategist, high tower advisors, and head of investment solutions, and my pal Ken Polcari. Managing partner at Case Capital Advisors and Chief Market Strategist at Slate Stone Wealth. Kenny, are those two separate companies? Yes, they are. One's the Slate Stone Wealth is the RIA, and Case Capital is my consulting business. Oh, I got it. And Stephanie, uh, High Tower Advisors is different than Investment Solutions. Yes, Hightower Advisors is the independent wealth management firm, and Investment Solutions is actually a miniature, and not so miniature because we run $3.5 billion in assets under management. Whoa. We are the outside uh, manager for any advisor that wants to put money with us. Oh, good for you. Well, I, I put money in. I don't have any money. I'm an <laughs> impoverished broadcaster. You know. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Steph, kick us off. It was a boring week. Yeah. But I do want to I do want to get your both of your opinions, because um, there's no question the Fed is going to keep tightening. Now, they'll do quarters, but you've got all these uh, Fed people signaling um, John Williams, the head of the New York Fed. That's a big position. Um, Christopher Waller, who was a board member, uh, Jim Bullard from the St. Louis Fed. Uh, Lorraine Mester from the Cleveland Fed. Uh, and I was particularly interested, and I spoke to John Carney about this in Breitbart. Um, you know, John Williams, who's a key guy and a smart man, um, you know, he said, okay, the inflation rate is going to be 3.5% by the end of the year. But, 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 he said, that's still too high. And that, so to to me, that tells me, this one-and-done argument that I hear from Wall Street is not right. That unless, you know, you get the inflation, and they're going to stay with the 2% target, and they're going to have to go. I mean, I think they're going to have to go up to 6% on the funds rate, Stephanie. But I don't mm-hmm. know. What what are you thinking? I want to get you both on this because, you know, the bond market is not discounting this kind of um, Fed tightening. Yeah, so uh, it's inflation. That's that's at the end of the day, uh, that's what they're focused on, uh, and they can focus on that because we have such low unemployment. We have such a strong job market. We can talk about the job market in terms of initial claims starting to reverse the trends we've seen. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, we still have a very tight labor market. We have wages that are running up 7%. We have switch rates on wages. If you switch a job, you can get 15%. 
Mm. So very strong wage numbers. And then I look at the numbers like you guys do, right? Like you and Kenny do. Inflation, 5% headline uh, CPI, core 5.6, core X shelter 5.8. So these numbers are still way too high. And the Fed is going to continue on their path to, I don't know if it's six, Larry. I mean, maybe they just get to five, five and a quarter and then just wait and they pause and they see, because we have a lot of cross currents in the economy, right? I mean, this week alone was so strange. We had a great Empire Fed number, and then we had a horrible Philly Fed manufacturing number. We had actually better housing data, but yet housing still is in a recession. Manufacturing, still new orders are coming down. So we have a lot of cross currents. I would say at the end of the day, that's going to keep doing their thing. I'm hoping it's five, five and a quarter. Then they stay, they pause, and then, uh, and then they see. But the, the 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 biggest thing is there's still too much momentum in the economy. I mean, look at the Atlanta Fed GDP now number at two and a half percent for 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 GDP for the quarter. So they can do, and they're going to do, and then we're gonna, eventually we're going to have to see what the repercussions are based on what they have done. Kenny, what are you thinking here? So, so I've been in the camp like Stephanie that they're going to go one more time and get us to five, five and a quarter was what I have been thinking. PPI last week or a week and a half ago when it came out, that was significantly lower than I think what the projections were. This week's PCE that's coming is supposed to be go from five percent down to four point one on the top line. Although you're over the uh, although the core number is supposed to remain at four and a half, four point five, just below last month. So it's going to be interesting to see if that prompts them to suggest that they need to go one more time in June, because if they do, then that gets us to five and a quarter, five and a half, which is closer with Jimmy Bullard, Neil Kashkari, Loretta Messer, because mm. like you said, they're all pushing for, you know, the five and a half, five seventy five, maybe even six range. Mm-hmm. Although I'm in the camp that they were going to get it to five, five and a quarter and leave it. And I'm going to stay in that camp until uh, until I see what happens this week, like with the PCE. Right. I, I think that they've done enough up to this point and they're willing to say, let us just pause, not pivot, not pivot at all. And I don't think there's going to be a pivot at all this year, the way the market seems to think there's going to be a 75 basis point cut by Christmas. I don't think that's happening at all. Um, But I could see them pausing and just holding. But remember, uh, I go back to John Williams of the New York Fed, who's a very smart guy. I mean, he's, he's an econometrician. He's kind of a conservative Keynesian. He's not a supply sider. Uh, Waller's more of a supply sider and Bullard too, but putting all that stuff aside, what he said to the money marketeers, which is a venerable old group here in New York City, and all the bond guys go to it. I used to go to it, and then later on I spoke to it. But the point is, he said that the three uh, PCD flare would be about three and a half percent, three and a half percent by the end of the year, but Big but, capital B, but that's still too high. Right. I thought that was a very important signal from the vice chairman of the Federal Open Market Committee that, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're going to keep that 2% target. And it's going to be real hard, you know, with the numbers you both cited. I mean, Stephanie is right that that I don't know if, you know, the Atlanta Fed's GDP tracker is 2.5%. Uh, they get, you know, they're, they're good ballpark. You know, they've had a pretty decent record that doesn't, uh, with the three and a half percent unemployment rate, the way the fed looks at the world, 
I think they're going to go higher, man. They're John Taylor, smart guy from Stanford, author of the Taylor Rule. I had John Taylor on the TV show, I don't know, a couple, three weeks ago, four weeks ago. He said 6%, kids, 6%. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know if that's right or not. I'm just saying. But, you know, that nothing here. Let me put it to you differently. I don't think five and a quarter or five and a half is in the bond market. And if it's not in the bond market, it's not in the stock market. Right. Well, there's I would agree with you. There's a, there's a, sorry, I'm sorry, Kenny. Um, the, no, but there's like a 60% change. There's a 60% read through that by the end of the year, the Fed actually starts to ease, which I think is crazy. I actually do. There, there's no way yeah. that the Fed just spent a year in right. combating inflation and all this stuff to all of a sudden, whatever that number is, Larry, is it five? Is it six? But they're not going to all of a sudden get there and then say, "Okay, now we're going to actually reverse course." Mm. I just exactly. don't. Not even if not even if numbers come down to where they want them to be. I think they're going to stay there stubbornly high, and that is why the market, in my opinion, is kind of in this trading range because we're all trying to like circle the wagons and figure out what the heck is going to happen. In the meantime, you said it was a boring week, and it was. But guess what? Earnings have started. 17% of the S&P 500 have reported. And by the way, 76% have beaten by 5% or more. Hmm. And it's been a margin story, which everyone says, and Kenny, I'd love your opinion. Margins, everyone thinks they're going to collapse, but they haven't. Hmm. And guess what? Because, because as we're talking about inflation being high, it's still down from such serious levels a year ago, and supply chains are easing, and the labor market is getting a little bit better. And oh, by the way, we know U.S. corporations restructure, cost cut, and do whatever it takes so that they can make that bottom line. Mm. And so I just kind of feel like it's not all gloom and doom. It's just a trading range, volatile kind of situation. How's Budweiser doing there, and how's your Bush? <laughs> Where do you even want to start with that conversation? How are they, how, how are they doing? How are their earnings? Their earnings are not earning. <laughs> Did you see the ad? Just have I saw this ad where the the guy uh, he, he's kind of like a country mountaineer type guy put three or four Budweiser cans. Uh, up on a tree stump or something, and he, he took a rifle out and shot them. That was uh, Kid Rock. He did it with three cases of Bud Light or something, wasn't it, Kid Rock? That's yes. That blasted it's, the beer. It's Kid Rock. I, I, I'm a culturally illiterate. It was Kid Rock. That you're exactly right. I just I was just wondering how Bud, how Anheuser's earnings were doing. But um, I heard they re- I heard they replaced that with the the woman that they had put in charge. That she got replaced last week. Oh, really? That's <laughs> okay. Yeah. Anyway, um, we don't want to mix uh, social policy with the stock market, no. heaven forbid. But um, Ken Polcari, is the er- I thought earnings were supposed to be falling. Yeah, uh-huh. well, listen, it started with the banks, and we expected the banks to be better, right? That was the expectation. And, in fact, the big money center banks were. They all reported nicely. Some of the regionals did struggle. You saw a Western Alliance actually moved up the, uh, on Friday after they reported. I think they gained 2.5%. Uh, but then one of the other ones that escapes me at the moment that really got crushed. Oh, Truist, I think Truist Financial got crushed down six percent because you know they missed. And so, the, with the, but that's not necessarily unexpected. We we thought the regionals were going to have some issues, and I think that's what we saw. But to Stephanie's mm-hmm. point, we are seventeen percent into the earnings. We've got eighty three percent to hear from. 
Um, and so I still think there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And yes, it's going to be a margin game. So we'll see how we'll see how it all comes out. I do expect that, um, uh, or we all expect that earnings are going to be down year over year. Uh, but unless they're down more than, yeah, I think the expectation is what, like five and a half percent year over year. Unless they're down significantly more than that, I actually think the market stays in this trading range. Although I do, I do think there's going to be a push a little bit lower first before it finds any more what uh, any more stability. What happened to what happened to Goldman Sachs? They lost money. That's wrong well, business model. Wrong, <laughs> wrong business. What? Tell me, yeah, Stephanie. And, and, why is it? What's it? Yeah. That, what's the wrong business? Was this uh, retail? They, they, they don't know how to do retail. No, they are all institutional. They're all trading, and they did not diversify when they should have, like mm. Morgan Stanley did, right? Mm. Look at Morgan Stanley. E-Trade Evance, they made M&A over the last several years. They have diversified their business mix, so they're not so rate-dependent or capital markets-dependent. Mm. Now, I will say, and I suspect Kenny would agree with me on this, if – Capital. If you think capital markets are kind of troughing, right, Cause, because last year was so horrible. So how could it get any worse, right? So if it's sort of kind of troughing, then as capital markets comes back, and that might not be until the second half of this year, maybe into 2024, Goldman's going to be fine. But in the meantime, what Morgan Stanley has done is they've tried to get through these cyclical up mm. and down, this boom-bust stuff, mm. and they've right. done a much better job, in, in my opinion. What's um, – i got to take a break – What's Kid Rock's investment strategies? Anybody know? <laughs> just, to, just to come back to that, I'm I'm kind of really interested in that. Anyway, we we got, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble. I'm going to get my guests in trouble, and they're both dear friends for many many years. Stephanie Link, chief investment strategist at High Tower Advisors and head of investment solutions, and Kenny Polcari, managing partner at Case Capital Advisors, chief market strategist at Slate Stone Wealth. Uh, we're going to take a break. Both of you think of something to talk about during the break. We'll be right back. I'm Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist at Hightower Advisors and the Head of Investment Solutions, and Ken Polcari, Managing Partner at Case Capital Advisors and Chief Market Strategist at Slate Stone Wealth. You're both right. The uh, Bud Light uh, marketing lady is taking a leave of absence. That's <laughs> I just checked it. You're right. The news is very good. Let me ask you, um, uh, Ken Polcari, does the debt ceiling discussion slash threat have anything to do with the stock market? Doesn't seem to, but I don't know. I mean, it could be a big front page thing in a month or so. I think in a month or so, it's going to be more of a front page thing if they don't, if they don't, you know, come to a conclusion. I don't think it's bothering. I don't think it's affecting the market right now, although they're starting to, you know, whip it up to make people, you know, all anxious about it as if they're not going to raise it because we know in the end, the U.S. is not defaulting on our debt. It's just not. So when they use that argument, oh, my God, we're going to default, we're not going to default. They know damn well we're not going to default. But, you know, they're going to take it right to the 11th hour. I think as we get closer, you could have some anxious moments in the market, you know, as, as the rhetoric heats up. But in the end, no, I don't think it does. I'm trying to remember, Steph, when was the last time we went? These things always go down to the wire. Mm. I don't remember when this, when did we have the last one that went down to the wire? 2011. Is that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. During I mean, Obama, right? Was that yeah. Obama and Boehner, and was that last weekend yeah. that yeah. they finally cut a deal? 
But what did, right. the, did the stock market or bond market do anything uh, during that period? It did initially. It fell on the, the on the right. on the credit on the credit agency change. So so yeah, it did. And you know what? Maybe for the next maybe May and June, it's going to be volatile. Uh, but they're going to have to figure out some sort of resolution. Here's the question I think we all have to ask ourselves is how much in terms of spending cuts is going to happen? Because we've got to get some sort of spending cut because we know the Republicans, that's what they want. And, of course, we know the Democrats don't want that. But there's got to be a happy medium. But, look, Republicans want to pass something of $4 trillion in spending cuts, which is crazy. Um, it's not going to happen because the Democrats aren't going to agree to it. So, but it's going to be this somewhere in the middle. And what about this infrastructure, this $1 trillion in the semiconductor plants and building America great again and all this other stuff? How much is that going to get reduced? And it doesn't even really matter. At the end of the day, they're going to figure out a resolution. There are going to be, you know, re- repercussions. There's going to be uh, certainly issues uh, to, to deal with. But I think overall, the market probably will shrug it off unless it's something really, really serious and they can't get any kind of an agreement. Here's, here's something I want to I want to leave you with. Two things. I talked about the consumer earlier. Um, American Express reported um, travel and entertainment in the past quarter grew 39%, Larry. Airline travel up 60%. Huh. Restaurant, restaurant growth up 28%. Mm. Consumer services, and this goes back to Kenny my po- and my point on inflation, Services inflation is still very, very high, but services demand is still very, very high. And then one other thing that's not getting a lot of attention, and I know you're going to come back to me and say I don't believe any of the numbers, but China data is getting better. Yeah. And that's because, and that's because no, they're No, I've seen that. I've seen so, so uh, yeah. yeah, Strategus is reporting on that, and uh, Ed Hyman's been reporting on that. So So you want to have consumer U.S. companies, consumer exposure to the reopen in China. And that's Hmm. that's that's what I would leave you with. Kempo, Kerry, what do you like here, if anything? So uh, in terms of sectors, look, I'm still in that camp that you got to play defensive just until we kind of get through the earnings season and and the the whole debt limit thing. So I'm still very much consumer staples, big cap names in the industries that you want. Hmm. I got some tech but not, you know, staying with the big tech. So the Apples, the Amazons, the IBMs, right? Um, that, that's where I would stay right now and continue to, and continue to build mm-hmm. in those sectors, right? I'm pulling back from anything that's kind of on the edge just because it could get, uh, it could get antsy, right? You'll see some of those names really get clocked if, uh, if you know, earnings season suddenly turns sour or there's some event that causes real nervousness. So that's how I'm playing it. All right. Stephanie Link, Ken Carey, Kid Rock, Thank you, kids. We appreciate it very much. (laughs) (coughs) Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break, do some money in politics on the other side with Liz Peek and Steve Moore. Please stick around. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to do some money in politics with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore from FreedomWorks and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline and his great show, More Money, follows this show and many of these very same stations. Welcome back, kids. 
Uh, I got a couple of them for you right off the top. Um, Biden executive order to require agencies to make environmental justice part of the mission. Environmental justice. So these guys, they're going to abolish the internal combustion engine. Nobody ever voted on that. They're going to destroy the fossil fuel industry. And the Office of Environmental Justice, racism is a fundamental driver of environmental injustice. I, I don't know what the... I have no, but they're putting these things in. Every department's going to have its environmental. Ju- Racism is a fundamental driver of environmental injustice, Liz Peek. I'm going to leave that yeah. with you. I don't even know what I, it means. Well, they don't either. Uh, I mean, they're just getting started. But of course, every time they roll out one of these directives to all federal agencies, unfortunately, those agencies have to comply. And so they have to dedicate resources. Uh, and all kinds of uh, bureaucratic uh, energies towards towards complying with this. And what does it mean? For example, the FAA, let's just talk about the group that regulates airlines. So they're going to be concerned that airline pollution, I guess, is worse over minority neighborhoods or worse. I mean, honestly, Larry, you can get so bound up on this that none of these agencies will do the job they're really meant to be doing. And of course, that is that's happening. We're seeing that happening. All these distractions uh, in the name of social justice are really weakening the the purpose of our bureaucracy, the effectiveness of our bureaucracy. And I mean, no one thinks it is very effective, but it only can get worse when you. And by the way, the same thing's happening in corporate America as you keep diverting resources to, you know, winnowing out, uh, rooting out social injustice and racism and so forth. Companies get weaker because they're not attending to their business. They're not attending to their main mission. So it's, I think, honestly, uh, um, we'll see what comes of this. I don't think much will. I think this is just more sort of uh, headline-producing nonsense. But, you know, it's, it's, I think it's very discouraging to people who want our government to succeed and our country to succeed. Republicans ought to defund everything. <clears throat> they ought to yeah. defund the whole damn thing. I'm for HR one, the Lower Energy Cost Act, which would, which would help the fossil fuel business. But Steve Moore, you know, this crap. I mean, the Bidens just throw this crap. They just litter the government with this stuff. I mean, this. Uh, so you got environmental injustice, whatever that means. Uh, Liz, Liz gets a va- you valiantly try to describe it. I don't know what it means. But then you got this other stuff. Um, uh, where, you know, the mortgage market, right, Fannie and Freddie, uh, if you have a high FICO score and you can put a 20% down payment, they're going to penalize you, right? This I don't know if that's – to me, that's environmental injustice. <laughs> they're going so, um, to penalize you for that. Uh, yeah. I had Mark Calabrian, you know, he just mashed it into the ground. But then the other one, I got another one for you, throw this in the pot. Uh, AOC, other Dems, reintroduced trillion-dollar Green New Deal plan. The Democrats, led by Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey, Democrat of Man- oh, there's a guy. We haven't heard much from him. Uh, they're going to tackle the climate crisis with a decade-long mobilization that creates millions of good-paying union jobs. Uh, reintrodu- but so here's the thing. 
Doug Holtz-Eakin, you know him. He's a very smart guy, and he runs uh, American Action Forum. They priced this out when this thing was first introduced a couple years ago, <laughs> over 10 years. Get this, $92.9 trillion. Wait, <laughs> seriously, $92.9 trillion over 10 years. Okay, so let's say it's let's just in round numbers call it a hundred trillion, call it ten trillion dollars a year. The federal budget today is a little south of seven trillion. I mean, come on, these Democrats are ridiculous. Come on, Steve Moore, they're just ridiculous. Call them what they are. Yeah. yeah so look, there's a there's a. a bigger story here that is a big problem for the left, which is that the environmental climate change agenda is um, the biggest victims of that agenda are poor people, unquestionably. So it's it's the most regressive movement in the history of mankind to take away people's energy because rich people aren't going to lose their energy. It's going to be poor people who are. And so what they're doing is trying to go on the offensive and say, no, our policies are going to help poor people. No, they're not. Who do you think, Larry? is the victim of higher gas prices. I mean, Mm. people, you know, Mm -hmm. in the upper middle class and the upper class, people like us, you know, we complain when we have to pay $5 a gallon or $6 a gallon. For poor people, it means they can't drive their car. Mm. Uh, Same thing with, you know, being able to heat your um, apartment or air condition your apartment in the winter. Um, What are the ironies of, you know, when you look at what are the best ways to get poor people out of poverty? You know what the best, one of the single thing that's really... um, very highly correlated with low-income people moving out of poverty. It's getting a car, (laughs) getting a car. And these lunatics on the left (laughs) want to take people's cars away from them. And so um, you you just go down all the line, the whole line. These, these are policies that will really hurt poor people. And one other quick point, you know, you mentioned this green new green deal. Um, I just thought we passed the green new deal last year. That was what this whole inflation reduction act was. I guess that one didn't work out so well. So we need another one. Well, it's not enough. uh, The best, the best way to help people, poor people and to create economic justice is to grow the damn economy. Oh, there you go. But you're going to have, you require energy in order to do that. Of course. Of course. Energy use, by the way, is highly associated with economic growth. So countries that are growing use energy because energy is the input in everything you produce. But growth is associated with lower carbon emissions because of technological advances. Seriously. Because, you know, people discover me. I mean, that's why we are growing rapidly. Um, and the emissions, carbon emissions were coming down. Yes. But, you know, Larry, I think uh, there's really a warning for the Biden administration in what's happening in Europe, because in Europe, you've had several pushbacks now against EU strategies and EU policies that look a lot like what Joe Biden is doing, because legislators there are worried about a backlash. And I think when you start telling people that they can't buy internal combustion engines, they can't buy gas-powered stoves, that electricity prices are going to double, which they will if they continue along this road. Energy prices in general are going to double. You know, I think eventually you're going to see what happened in in Holland, where you have an emergent populist party that Mm. basically fought back against these ridiculous mandates trying to get rid of half of their agricultural Mm. uh, livestock Mm. farmers. You have a pushback in France because the French Green Party, of all groups, 
is saying no enough because this is going to drive people to right wing parties. I mean, there is a point at which people just say enough. And honestly, to your point, uh, Steve, we just passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which no exactly. one even thinks of in that term anymore. It is a climate act. It is hundreds of billions of dollars being exactly. pushed along a string, a string that isn't moving very well because we're not set up to accomplish what they want to accomplish. So how about we just figure out all this stuff and how it's supposed to work before they throw hundreds of billions of dollars more at it. But, it's so improbable and illogical. It really makes you want to scream. By the way, um, that thing's been reestimated uh, $1.2 trillion now. And that's not just Goldman Sachs. The Brookings Institute did yeah. the same thing. But other people have noted, and this is important, there are no limits. There are no uh, time limits to the uh, tax credits for, um, you know, green energy. The greeny tax credits can go on forever. And you might have that bill, if it's not stopped, might wind up. People are saying, like, to achieve the goals embodied in the bill, the tax credits could go on um, to, like, 2040 or 2050 even. Yeah. So it could be so, mu- multi-trillion. It's not just one trillion. It could be multi. So the Green New Deal, which is ninety-two point nine trillion, you know, they may challenge that. <laughs> and, well, let me let me give an example of um, of the kind of regressive nature of these programs. So they've they've got this dingbat uh, seventy-five hundred dollar tax credit. You buy a Tesla, the government writes you a check for seventy-five hundred dollars. I don't. Somebody's got to explain the logic of that to me. But anyway. You know, the California, and by the way, as you know, most Teslas and most electric vehicles are sold in one state. You know what state that is? California. California. California sure. is, you know, is, makes up almost practically half of the EV sales in the whole country. And so there's been some recent studies, and you guys will love this. Who do you think are buying Teslas? Not people in the inner cities, not middle class people. Rich, Rich people. people Rich people. And then they're getting a $7,500 credit. As long is as, that the stupidest thing? As long as the battery is made in the U.S. Well, <laughs> by the way. And that's another thing, Larry, that isn't really being reported much in this country, but we have ignited, Biden has ignited a trade war with Europe. I mean, they push through their own credits now, trying to beef up their own climate friendly. Uh, activities and manufacturing, particularly in Germany, you know, they're furious. No one wants to talk about this because it was Trump that supposedly uh, affronted our uh, EU uh, allies and so forth. But Biden has really triggered a pretty substantial trade war. And they're really pushing back against this domestic manufacturing requirement because their companies are seriously disadvantaged. And by the way, it's not enough I mean, we're still embracing China producing and shipping to the United States an awful lot of batteries and materials and so forth. I, I know, you know, everything about this is so backwards. Uh, it, it's just sort of hard to get your arms around well, the it. Inflation Reduction Act was the China bailout. Act. Yeah, they're, totally. They're now talking about a carbon tariff in Europe. But yeah. actually, oh, that's excuse me. That's exactly right. But, in Europe. But actually, and they, they're not just talking about it. I think they actually passed it. But they want uh, well, the parliament passed it. That's correct. Um, yeah. They want to. I was talking to Arthur about this, Art Laffer, yesterday on the show, um, whether it's a sales tax 
or a carbon tax. They want to tax American companies. And they want to tax particularly American digital companies, technology companies. And you know why that is? Because Europe doesn't have any. Yeah, they can't compete. Yeah. I mean, they can't, you know, this is just retribution. And you know who suffers? European consumers. European people, ordinary folks suffer the most because these taxes jack up prices. And this carbon tax thing, nobody knows what it is. Nobody knows what constitutes. Nobody knows what the specs are. It'll be whatever they want it to be to go after American companies. That's what they're going to do. I got to take it. So, Larry, I know I know we're headed to a break, but I want to make one other quick point about this regressive nature Mm -hmm. of these programs. So, um, you know, the uh, I mentioned the Tesla, uh, you know, thing. And so if they when the Democrats talk about tax cuts for the rich, can we bring up the Tesla subsidy? Because that all goes to the rich. But the other point is, you know, if you look at surveys of an American people on climate change and you ask people, are you concerned about climate change? 75 or 80% will say, yes, I'm concerned about climate change. And then you ask them, how much are you willing to pay yeah, right. you know, to stop climate change? And the average person says maybe 75 to $100 a year. And if your numbers are right, we're doing about $10,000 yeah. a year yeah. or something like that. So, you know, these are the two orders of magnitude higher in price than people are willing to and pay. And by the way, physicist and energy scientist Steve Coonan was on the show last night again and he said uh, these tailpipe uh, emissions laws coming out of EPA will have no, uh, uh, no, right. t- t- uh, two-tenths of one percent climate <laughs> reduction, okay, right. for destroying the American car business and ending fossil fuels. That's all, two-tenths of one percent, something like that. Anyway, let's get out of here, uh, take a quick break. We're talking to Liz Peak and Steve Moore. Steve Moore Show, More Money follows this show Liz is Fox News contributor. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back. We're talking money and politics with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, whose great show, More Money, follows this show on many stations. Can I just, um, Joe Biden's at it again. Uh, Rich people in America only pay 8% tax rate. And then he spelled, this was in Maryland the other day. And then he tried to spell eight, but he couldn't. He got to E-I, he got to E-I-G-H, but he couldn't hit, he just couldn't do it. So they went back to 8%. But the fact is, uh, this is a James Freeman, Jim Freeman taxing billionaires. Very good column from yesterday uh the tax foundation william mcbride i mean this eight percent number is a complete made-up number high-income taxpayers pay the highest tax rates according to the irs the average income tax rate in 2020 was 13.6 the top five percent paid 22.4 the top one percent paid 26.0 and this is what i love the top 0.001%, that is the richest 1,575 tax returns filed in 2020, paid $71 billion in income taxes, and they had an average tax rate of 23.7, which is twice. So the top billionaires, their average tax rate is twice what middle-income people pay. And then finally, the top 1% 
uh, in terms of their actual payments, pay 42.3% of all taxes paid. Uh, let's speak. Why does, why does Biden continue this? Why does, it's a made up number, 8%. It's true he couldn't spell it, but it's all wrong. I mean, and people know it's wrong. And what happens is every time he does this, all kinds of, you know, fact checkers come out and, and show everybody he's wrong. It makes them look yeah, like but- a complete dunce. Sadly, an awful lot of his followers, an awful lot of Democrat voters don't think it's wrong. They believe that kind of number because they hear it from people they like and respect, like Elizabeth Warren, like Joe Biden, et cetera. And, you know, Larry, this is one of these typical things where Republicans are right. We have the facts. It isn't true. Mm. It's not even close to being true. But who, who calls him out on this? Fact checkers, yet, but very few people run to their phones and fact check Biden when he's saying something like this. I I also think it is astonishing to me that Joe Biden lies about everything with impunity. And, you know, I mean, this is just sort of wailing in the dark because no one's going to fix that. Uh, We the truth is Republicans got to elect a new president. We have to win in 2024. We need a grown up. It isn't. Yeah, we need a grown-up grown serious House. about policy. Yeah. The class warfare that Democrats have engaged in is incredibly harmful to our country. You know, it stifles ambition. It stifles the, the view of a lot of young people that they can get ahead and do. Th- the, the idea that the, the system is rigged against them is a prime Democrat talking point, and it leads people not to try. It leads people to want handouts of the kind that you were talking about earlier, the mortgage thing. Are you kidding me? Have we not learned about how damaging it is to subsidize people who can't pay Mm. for housing? I mean, Mm. everything they're doing is just completely wrong. But you know what? It's the way they are operating and the way they've decided they're going to be successful, slicing and dicing the population, turning us against each other, rather than, as Steve said earlier, growing the economy, which is the only way the only way that the mm. entire population benefits. Hey, Steve. That's not what they want. Hey, Steve, uh, you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, good, because I know you got your show. But will the, uh, you know, Jason Smith and the Republicans, when they get to the budget resolution, I don't mean the debt ceiling thing, but the budget resolution, you think they'll incorporate uh, making the Trump tax cuts permanent? Mm. Well, first of all, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I mean, this is a president who, by his own admission, has created more jobs in two years than any other president. 12,000. 12,000 jobs in two years. Yeah. Did you see that, by the way? E-I-G-H. Oh. Uh, you know, I, I think that this funny. fight that's it's coming up, terrible. you know, what, what you and Liz uh, were just talking about. Um, the speech that Biden gave the other day in response to mm. Kevin McCarthy's proposal, which, you know, look, people can disagree or agree with some of the elements of McCarthy's proposal. I like it a lot. Mm-hmm. But I mean, Thanks, Biden man. didn't even respond. He just said, oh, Republicans just want to cut taxes for rich people and yeah. they're going to, you know, rip uh, big, big gaping holes in the social safety net. And I'm not negotiating with them. I mean, what, even Barack Obama, you know, who's a pretty liberal president. You know, sat down and negotiated and with work, the speaker of and the work requi- work requirements are wacko. Yeah, exactly. No, he said the requ- and by the and there's a writer story today just came out that says 
uh, all the food shelters are worried they're going to run out of money because Republicans want to take away food aid. And I, I read, uh -huh. I, I was like, what cuts are they talking about? Mm -hmm. And you know what they're talking about? The fact that they may require people on food stamps to get to get a job. Something, by yeah. the way, that 80 percent of Americans support. Yes. Yes. Well, look, um, even I know you don't like this group, but Maya McGinnis, what is it, the committee for yeah. the federal budget? Even they came out and endorsed McCarthy's yeah. thing. It's a good plan. I thought, yeah, I mean, I thought that was pretty good. All right, I we're running out of time. Impressive. All you rich people out there, we've run out of time. Hate to do it. Liz Peak, thank you ever so much. Steve Moore, Steve Moore Show, more money. Follows this show, folks. Hang out with him. He's a good guy. I'm Cudlow. With any luck, I'll be back next weekend. <laughs>